Well, good morning, Bethel Church. I'm sorry. I know I don't hate to. That was that was a little weak, and I'm needing the help this morning. I had a long weekend. It was hard to get out of bed. So, good morning. Oh, now I feel welcome. Thank you. Um, hey, a couple of things here. Uh, we are in our last, uh, basically our last sermon through for the series Psalms through the summer, which is uh, where we've been for the about the past ten weeks or so. Uh, we may or may not have an add-on. I'm going to keep you guessing, uh, so we'll see about that. I've got one week that I'm kind of figuring out what I want to do with, and we may, if you're familiar with them, we may take one Sunday and look at the imprecatory psalms. We may. We'll see about that. Okay. That was, Ad, was that Adam? Adam would do that. I don't know where he is. There he is. There's a bigger one. Yeah, okay. We had two woos. We'll see about that. Uh, but we are, we are finishing up our series Psalms through the summer, and I want to just remind you a little bit about that before uh, we dive in, and then uh, we'll spend some, some time here in prayer. But uh, we have kind of tried to look at a couple of things as we've, as we've gone through the book of the Psalms. One of the things we've done is uh, we've acknowledged sort of the five-book structure of the Psalms. In fact, if you take your handout out and look at the back side, you can see where we've laid out some of this. Uh, the Psalms are arranged in a five-book structure. It is Israel's sort of hymnal of worship. Uh, it's not just random. There is purpose and organization in how it's been collected and formatted. And so these are kind of the five books, as you can see on the back. And, and we've kind of identified that this five-book structure really follows Israel's story with God. And they wanted to chronicle sort of these different seasons uh, and, and organize their, their worship along that. And so we've been trying to keep an eye on that. And as you can see, the psalm that we're looking at this morning, which is Psalm 107, kind of fits within that fifth book. In fact, it starts uh, really the fifth book of, uh, of a book which is devoted to psalms of praise for all that God has done for his people. Um, and the other thing that we've been looking at is the different genres of psalms. And we've identified 10, and there's certainly more than that, but we've been looking at 10 primarily and uh, the, the last one that we had waiting for us this week, last week we did Corporate Lament, if you'll remember, unique experience for the church. Uh, this week we get to do Corporate Thanksgiving, and uh, how fitting that we get to go to the other end of the spectrum today and do Corporate Thanksgiving. In fact, earlier this week I uh, texted Kathy as she was kind of putting together the order of service and the music, and I said, Kathy, after a Sunday of Lament, this Sunday should be a hootenanny, and uh, had to spell check that word. Um, but let's just take a moment here and let's pray let's ask the Lord to uh, help us as we study his word together Father we come to you now because we do not worship a book but we worship the God who has revealed himself in his word we study this book Lord not to be biblical scholars but to be the people of God to know our God who has revealed himself to us, to know our God who has offered redemption through Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we come to this book humbled too because its topic is you, first and foremost. And you are high and lifted up. You are a transcendent being. Though you are imminent, you are transcendent. And though we want to know you and want to give our best thoughts to you, you are too wonderful for our thoughts, Lord. We thank you that you have accommodated yourself to us by revealing yourself in your word and by showing us your fullness in your son, Jesus Christ. 
And we thank you that you have given us, who have trusted in you, your Holy Spirit, who illuminates the word of God to us so that we might understand it and brings it to bear with precision in our lives. And so we ask now that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us. Lord, we give our best to you, but we know our best is too short, too small, not enough. And we ask that you would again accommodate yourself to us and through your spirit help us to know what we need to what we need to know, what we need to do, and the kind of people we need to be. So be with us during this time. We pray with confidence in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you'd open your Bible now to the book of Jeremiah. I told you we were doing the last Psalm, Psalm 107, and so let's go to Jeremiah. How about? Um, Jeremiah 29.11, a very familiar uh, verse to many of you. Uh, says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. This is a beloved passage of scripture. Uh, it is often quoted. Uh, it is often quoted in occasions that are probably misfitting for uh, what it was intended to really talk about. Uh, in fact, it usually appears especially on uh, graduation cards and and uh, these kinds of things, commencement ceremonies, this is when this verse really comes out. And uh, the person who is passing it along is always well-intentioned. They love the passage for its positivity. Uh, they really want to bless and encourage the person that they're sharing it with. And they have the best of intentions. Uh, uh, very often they're giving it to a student who's heading to a new season of life. And they want them to know that God is for them and God is on their side. And I would just simply tell you this. You might think twice about using this passage uh, for that specific purpose, or at least using it too glibly, it's maybe not necessarily the best place to go to offer encouragement because the original context of this passage is this was being offered to Judah, who was falling under God's wrath and discipline and judgment right before they were being carried off to exile from the attacking Babylonians. And um, that, that exile would turn out to be for 70 years. And so these are things that you're not necessarily hoping that your college kid experiences, you know, as they, as they go off to school for the first time. Um, or maybe you are, you know, maybe they've been a real punk for a couple of years and a little, little smackdown would be good for them. Um, there's a similar passage to this just a couple chapters later in chapter 33. So if you turn over Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 11. And similarly, it's, it's a message from the prophet Jeremiah to Judah, and it starts off brutally hard, but it too ends with a beautiful promise of restoration to come after the, judge, the judgment that God is delivering after the exile. There's this beautiful promise of restoration that they will return home and that God will rebuild them. And this passage, uh, chapter 33, 11, is the explicit background behind Psalm 107. And so we're going to read it. We're going to read sort of the, what Psalm 107 is answering, the situation that it's responding to. So let's look. I'm going to start with uh, chapter 33, verse 1, and we're going to read all 14 verses so we can get the background and the fullness behind this psalm. Jeremiah 33, 1. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth... The Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell, 
and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in this city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight with the Babylonians. They will be filled with the dead bodies of people, and I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from this city because of all its wickedness. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sound of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good, his love endures forever. If you're an underliner, underline that. We're coming back to it. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns, there will be again, there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I have made to the people of Israel and Judah. The psalm we're about to look, in, look at here, Psalm 107, is the literal fulfillment to this prophecy. Uh, the psalm, Psalm 107 that we have in front of us talks about Judah's coming out of exile, back into the land, rebuilding it, and now proclaiming the specific words that Jeremiah had prophesied. And it appears in verse 1 of Psalm 107, if you turn there now, verse 1 says these same words. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And so hopefully what we see now that we've read this passage in Jeremiah and the prophecy behind this psalm, hopefully we see now that these are not just nice, easy, trite words that somebody sat down with and sort of on the spot decided this would make a good psalm, and they just quickly penned them out glibly. This was the word of the Lord that had been delivered 70 years earlier. This was a prophecy that was prescribed. This was a song that was going to be sung, and now they have the occasion to sing it. This song comes after a season of the Lord hiding his face from his people and even bringing judgment upon them. But when he does bring them back into the land and he does reestablish them and the people look around and they see, it, they see the goodness of God and they see his unfailing love, they go back to the words that God had prescribed. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And that begins our psalm our psalm of corporate thanksgiving. The first point that I would focus on here is that the psalmist calls for the redeemed to praise God. Andrew, I'm a little hung up there. It goes, no, 
Don't work ahead. Don't cheat. There. All right. We're working against each other, weren't we? The first, um, the first point we see here is that this is a call for the redeemed to praise God. And I love the way it, it begins. Look at verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he has gathered from the lands, east and west, north and south. And so what we find here is an internal call among the people of God. There is this loving provocation within the community that we must come together and praise God for this occasion in which we live. It's time to thank God for who he is and for what he has done. Again, God told the prophet Jeremiah that this day would come. And now it's time to acknowledge it. And it's time to acknowledge it together in song and to collectively lift our voices and praise God for the one, because he is the one that is behind this time. And I have to admit, I, I, I like teaching from the NIV. I use the 2011 version of the NIV and I like that. It's, it's my preference. But I think in this particular instance, I like every other version's translation of verse 2 better. The ESV, the King James, the NAS, they all say this. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That has been burned on my mind this week. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them say it. Let them not be quiet about the redemption of the Lord. If they are his, if they belong to him, then let them say so. If God has rescued, if he has delivered, if he has forgiven, if he has brought you into the family of God, then say so. Talk about it. Speak up about it. Let it be on your lips. Say it. Articulate it. Sing about it. And the NIV's translation is pretty good too. Let them tell their story. Let them tell their story of what God has done. Let the redeemed of the Lord say that it is so. Well, this is not hard to find application for, is it? It's pretty easy. You have been called. If you are redeemed of God, if you have been brought back into relationship with a holy God, if you have recognized Jesus' death on your behalf as the one who forgives your sins, if you have seen your sins punished in him, and you've been reconciled to God, and you've been brought into his family, then you have to talk about it. You have to say so. It needs to be on your lips and not just the church. Uh, sometimes I fear that Christians have really lost the confidence and the skill at talking about their salvation in the public square. Uh, we, I think, have accepted too much uh, sort of this press towards the margins of culture where we have the freedom to worship wildly on Sunday if we would like. But Christian, you'd better be quiet the other six days of the week. And I just, I just want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, fight against that. I know some of you, it's more risky than others. If you're a teacher in the school district, if you work a government job, if you've got somebody across the hall that's antagonistic towards the gospel, it's going to be more costly. But our God gave us his own son to rescue us. He paid an incredible cost. How can we be redeemed of God? How can we be rescued and delivered from all that we've been delivered from and remain quiet? How can we not say so? How can we act as though this were some quiet secret in the corner of our life and not the most prominent thing about us? Uh, I think we're too easy or too content with living this sort of lifestyle Christian witness 
if you know what I'm talking about. And that's important. Uh, many people will sort of claim the words of uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Remember, he said, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. And that may have been a good word for his time and for his culture when everybody was nominally Christian. But that is not the world in which we live. In fact, one of the fastest growing groups of people in our demographic are those who claim no religion whatsoever. Um, that's one of the fastest growing movements. Um, preach the gospel always and if necessary use words. Christian, preach the gospel always with words and back it up with your lifestyle. And back it up with your lifestyle. So the psalmist, he won't let us get off that easy. I, I think he and uh, St. Francis might have had a little tete-a-tete, you know. Uh, the psalmist says, if you're the redeemed of God, you'd better get on with saying so. You should be quick and ready to share your story. Uh, in fact, I want to tell you this. This afternoon at 2 o'clock, uh, we're heading out as a church to the Chattanooga River. The directions are in your bulletin. We've got four people from the church that are being baptized this morning. They're going to stand up and they're going to say so. They're going to say, I'm following Jesus and I have been redeemed of the Lord. And they're going to say so. And I want to invite you to come out to that. Uh, it's maybe not the same kind of occasion that we get to have where we sit around and roast marshmallows and whatnot between uh, you know, fire risks and the rain and all the rest. We may not linger, uh, but we should be there. And we should hear people who want to follow Jesus say so. So I challenge you, encourage you to consider coming out at, at 2 o'clock. The bullet really of the passage here, the main point is, is very simple. The redeemed of the Lord must praise God for his enduring love and for his gracious deliverance, and for his rule over all. That's what we're going to see. And so we move into the second part here. We move into the second part. The psalmist calls for the redeemed to praise God. Why? Because we've been delivered. And verses 4 through 32 are relatively simple. They just capture really the full spectrum of things that God has rescued his people from. Uh, And so the first one that he identifies is this. From wandering in the wilderness. Look at verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Uh, Of course, this particular wandering here, this is specific to the attack from the Babylonians as they came into the city. Some were taken captive, some were scattered, and people kind of went to all the four corners, which is what these verses sort of describe, where all they went and how God redeemed all of them and brought them back into the land. Uh, And maybe for you, this is, this kind of idea of wandering, maybe this really resonates with you. Maybe you identify with this in your own personal story. Maybe that's your story with God. That there was a time in your life where you spent wandering sort of in desert wastelands and empty things. Looking for some sense of meaningful belonging. Maybe you tried to satisfy this longing with different things. Whether it was relationships that were unhealthy. Maybe you pursued career, advancement, money, possessions, autonomy, freedom from the man, the ability to do what you want. And what you experienced really was the desert wasteland. that You weren't created for these things. I love the words of Bernard of Clairvaux. I've quoted them to you many times. From the best bliss the world imparts, we turn again unfilled to thee. 
St. Augustine maybe said it even better. You have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So Israel's wanderings or Judah's wanderings in this case were uh, very literal. They were pressed out of their city, wandering in the deserts. Maybe your wanderings have been a little bit different and yet God has pulled you back into relationship with him despite that season of wasted time. The second uh, area that we see this rescue uh, from or this deliverance from, first of all, the wandering in the wilderness and then secondly, from bondage to isolation. Bondage and isolation. Look at verse 10. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Now again, just as the wanderings that we looked at in the previous section, just as those were literal, as those had been pressed out of Jerusalem while it was being destroyed and they were looking for a place to sort of recover, many were taken in captivity. They were taken to Babylon and they were incarcerated there. It was real. It was literal. Maybe for you, you have also experienced a sense of bondage in your own life. Maybe this is the group you identify with prior to your relationship with the Lord. Maybe there were some besetting sins, uh, some addiction to alcohol or pornography or drugs or some persistent lifestyle in you. Maybe you were in bondage to something that was not of your own making. Maybe you were in an abusive relationship. Maybe you were caught up in some sort of false religion, but you were in bondage. You were stuck and you needed out Today, it seems to me that we're not so much pressed into bondage behind iron bars, but many of us are in bondage to or held captive in prisons of our own making. Um, I've been reading through a lot of C.S. Lewis this year. I told you guys that it was time for me to grow up and uh, read C.S. Lewis, who is not my favorite. And so I've decided this year to try to read everything that he's written. And so most recently, I've been working through uh, the screw tape letters. Uh, And it's good. It's good. In fact, I think, and for a couple of years, I thought now it would be fun. I'll just throw this out there. It would be fun to do uh, a dramatic reading of this book in the wintertime when we're all, you know, bored and have nothing to do and we're discouraged to read through this and come here for dessert and hear it performed. Wouldn't that be great? If you're interested in that, talk to me and we'll see if we can put that together. If you're not familiar with this book, it's a little bit hard to set up because what we have here is, um, well, we have Uncle Screwtape, who is basically a high-ranking demon, if you will. And he's advising uh, his younger nephew on how to really get at Christians. And so that sort of comes at it from a different angle. And uh, and so you you hear this strategy of the other side, so to speak. And uh, and so there's this one particular quote that stood out to me. I'll read to you. Uh, This is from uh, the uncle to the nephew. Screw tape to Wormwood here. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy... He's referencing God here, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition and any pleasure to that in which it's least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. 
An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Um, fascinating. Uh, of course, this is just a fictional conversation between demons, so take it with a grain of salt. But Satan, uh, the great deceiver, loves to quite simply, see, he doesn't have to destroy you in life. He just has to distract you. He just has to keep your attention away from Christ and the reconciliation that's found in him. He just has to get you enamored with the things of this world. He just has to distract you and keep you focused and keep you in bondage there. We have to understand that our God is one who delivers from any and every kind of bondage. And the truth be told, every single one of us in this room has lived in bondage to sin. From the day we were born, sin had its grip on us. We were inclined to sin. We liked to sin. We added sin upon sin. Even though we may have fought it at times, the reality of things is we are natural born sinners. It's what we're good at. It's what God is rescuing us from. And he has done that in the person of Jesus Christ, his own son, given for us. The great beauty that we find is that not only when are we forgiven in Christ, when we place our faith in him and rescued from the bondage of sin, but he gives to us at that moment his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and gives us the power for obedience that we've never yet had. We become empowered to be the kind of people that God always intended us to be. And so where Judah would sing songs of thanksgiving for their literal deliverance from bondage, from prisons, how much more should the believer in Jesus Christ thank God for his deliverance from sin and from death and from hell? How much more? We have been rescued from bondage and from isolation. The third uh, sort of area that we see people rescued from here is... is, um, as the psalmist is writing, is we see those rescued from sickness leading to death. Look at verse 17. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice, thank offerings, and tell of his works with songs of joy. Now, initially, this may be a little bit of an off-putting passage for you because it, it definitely introduces the idea that there are particular sicknesses that come from sin. They're the result of sin. They're the consequence of sin. Um, now, I want to tell you this. That does not mean that when somebody is sick, they have absolutely, uh, that's a result of sin. Do not go around. Do not embarrass the Lord by going around accusing people. If you're sick, there must be sin in your life. Okay, don't do that. Uh, But it does show us that that's a possibility. That sometimes sickness, in fact, grave sickness, can be the result of, of indwelling sin. But the encouragement here is that God rescues us even from self inflicted wounds. In other words, God's rescue isn't just limited to the innocent or to really good people who try really hard, who have been unfortunately afflicted to no fault of their own. The forgiveness of God that is available to us is available to sinners, which is what we are. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners who I am the worst. In the words of Jesus himself in Luke 5, Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
The amazing thing about the gospel is just this. The forgiveness of God is directed toward that which is inexcusable. The forgiveness of God is directed towards that in your life, in my life, which is inexcusable. God does not excuse our sin or look away or say, well, you didn't really mean it. He looks at that sin in our life. He looks at those things and says, this is absolutely inexcusable. This is rebellion. It's nothing short of full-on rebellion. And I'm willing to forgive it and pay for it in my own son, Jesus Christ. God heals the sick, even those who have afflicted themselves. He heals sinners, not self-righteous people. And the fourth sort of region of, of deliverance that we see here is from those from, the, from storms on the sea. Look at verse 23 here. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up the heavens and went down to the depths. And in their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were all at their wits end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. Well, maybe this is your story. This particular group, if I could say there were Alaskans in the mix, I think this is them. Okay, these are, the, these are the guys, these are the folks who said, all right, Babylon's coming in. They're marauding. They're going to take over. They're pushing us out of here. We know judgment's falling. Jeremiah told us that. It's on. We're going to be destroyed. The city's going to fall. I'm not going easy. I'm not going to be taken captive. This is the Alaska get her done folks right here, right? I'm going, to, I'm going to escape. I'm going to go to the sea. I'm going fishing. I'm going to make it on my own. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to make a living. I'm going to stay alive. I'll go out on the waters, scared as I am of the waters. I'm going out there. And so maybe this is a little bit of your story. Maybe you kind of look at your own life and you feel like, hey, I got up on step with success and hard work because I've been self-reliant. I've hustled. I've worked hard. Be careful of that pride. Because God will bring you low. He will bring you to your knees and show you just how small you are in the scope of things. He will bring storms into your life to show you you don't stand alone if you don't stand with God. In the same way the sailor at a sea just can feel threatened by all of this stuff that comes up. If you've ever, if you, if you've ever been, spent any time in a little boat in the ocean, you feel really small, really fast, really vulnerable. And maybe that's the story that, that you have found yourself in. You thought you were successful, you thought you had it all, but God has threatened all that you hold dear. And you see now that everything you thought you secured for yourself is empty. And you see your need for God. As we look at these four areas, this is you know, it's pretty all-inclusive. I mean, we, we see these four corners from which God has rescued Judah after the judgment that befell them. And all we have to do is really let our imaginations go just a little bit. And we can see that these are the same corners that God has rescued us from, the same corners of our lives. And so I ask you to think for just a moment. What has God rescued you from? What has he delivered you from? Whether your story is one of wandering or bondage or sickness or the storms of the sea, 
If it's any of these things, if God has rescued you from these and redeemed you and brought you into a saving faith in him, then let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Our rescue can't just sit quietly in our lives. It should be on our lips. Thanksgiving should pour forth. God has rescued us. If we've been saved by the Lord, let us say so. There is this phrase that's repeated throughout the psalm. We see it in verse 8, 15, 21, 31. Uh, It's unfailing love. Uh, Or in some of your translations, it may be the loyal love of God. In fact, I think the ESV calls it the steadfast love. King James, it's the goodness. Uh, NAS is loving kindness. And the NIV is the unfailing love. And the Hebrew word behind this we've talked about before a little bit is chesed love. Remember this? The chesed love of God. The loyal love of God. The enduring love of God. And let me just tell you this. Let me get in your face lovingly and say, you don't have anybody in your life that loves you like this. Except God alone. And you may look around and you may look at the meaningful relationships you have. You might say, my spouse, my spouse is a faithful, loyal person in my life. They love me perfectly. But they don't love you perfectly. They're not always loyal. You may look at your parents and say their love has been enduring. It's been long lasting. But it's not forever. And it's not perfect. You may look at the love you have for your own children and say this is Pretty high love, but you know deep down in the recesses of your own heart, there have been moments of failure in your own life, in your own heart. And I think one of the more striking paragraphs that I've ever read in Brennan Manning's book, Ragamuffin Gospel, he talks about the love of God. He says that there is nothing that we can do to make the Lord love us any more or any less than he does right now. Because he loves you perfectly, completely, fully, and unconditionally. He loves you as much in a state of grace as in a state of disgrace. His love does not ebb and flow. His love is constant and perfect and monotonous. That's the Hesed love of God. It's perfect and enduring, unfailing, steadfast, loyal. And I think what's, what is a challenging passage for me, the Apostle John says in the New Testament that God is love. I mean, you could just think about that for days to try to grapple with that and understand it. And in that same epistle, the, the, the Apostle John says, we're only able to understand love because he first loved us. In other words, as with Judah, God has loved you through idolatry. He has loved you through your wandering. He has loved you through your times of bondage. He has loved you through your years of sickness, though you were unlovely. He loved you through your years of self-reliance and loved you enough to bring storms into your life to confront you with it. And so through any and through all of these, his love was perfect, loyal, steadfast, enduring. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, then he has brought you back to himself. And what the psalmist writes to Judah here, is applicable for us. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them say so. We come to our last point here, which is this. So the psalmist calls for the redeemed to praise the Lord. Why? Because he's delivered from all of these kinds of places. And then lastly, because he rules over all. Verse 33. He turned rivers into a desert. Flowing springs into thirsty ground and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who lived there. 
He turned the desert into pools of water and parched ground into flowing springs. There he brought the hungry to live, and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yielded a fruitful harvest. He blessed them, and their numbers greatly increased, and he did not, and he did not let their, their herds diminish. Then their numbers decreased, and they were humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in a trackless waste. But he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. In this final section, I think what's happening here is this. I think the psalmist is looking at the broad sweeping work of God in Israel's redemptive history. And I think what he's talking about here is their long story with God. I believe he's going back uh, to the famine that led Jacob and his sons into Egypt for relief. And then deliverance and the steady uh, provision of the Lord during the exodus. And then the giving of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then the calamity of Assyria and Babylon as they came in uh, and, and, and attacked and put down Israel and Judah because of their sin. And then the restoration of his people back into the land where they are at the time of the writing of this psalm. And I think this, this passage just covers the full scope of God's enduring love through all of this. He looks back all of, at, over all of it and says that God is sovereign over all. God sees, or the psalmist sees, God's sovereign hand in all of these things. And he tells them, it demands your praise. That the redeemed of the Lord say so. We structured our service this morning so that we could have an extended time of response. And I hope what you see is not just that God has saved Israel or saved Judah or restored them or redeemed them. If you're here this morning and you know Christ is your Savior, he's redeemed you. And we want to, have, we want to take this occasion to say so and to declare it, that God has been good. He has rescued us. So let's pray and then we're going to move into our hootenanny time of worship. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we're here this morning not because we're so smart or so good or that we're crafty and we figured this out. We acknowledge that we come from these same four corners. We've wandered. We've been in bondage. We've been in sickness due to our own sin. We've been self-reliant. And yet somehow by your grace, you showed us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are but sinners in need of a Savior. And you paid for it in Jesus and so we declare, Lord, we are the redeemed, which is not a badge of honor that we wear because of our own effort, but it is something that we wear with great pride because of your enduring love that you came and you rescued us. You didn't excuse our sin, but you punished it in your son. You forgave us. You forgave what was inexcusable. So we are the redeemed, and we gather together this morning, Lord, to say so. Your praise will be on our lips because of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.